a podcast about shipwrecks and lessons learned at sea. Uh, my name is Taylor, and I will be your host. Uh, first off, I'd like to thank everybody for checking out our first episode. Uh, it's done far better than I could have possibly imagined, and I'm very grateful for everybody uh, checking it out and, and enjoying it, hopefully. Uh, a couple things since the last show, a couple social media type things. Uh, we do have a uh, Instagram for the podcast. It is Beyond the Breakers Podcast. If you search that, we'll be posting pictures that are kind of relevant to the show, um, pictures of a cat, you know, no, whatever strikes our fancy that day. Uh, additionally, we do have an email. It's beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. If you have feedback or questions or even suggestions for a topic you'd like to hear about, feel free to reach out and uh, let us know. We love to interact. Um, with that being said, we'll kind of roll into it here. Um, it's uh, another snowy day here in Ohio. It's uh, just got done shuffling the driveway, so it's a, a little chilly. But, uh, you know, it's, it's it's not bad, all things considered, for mid-February. But uh, I guess we'll check in and see how things are in Wisconsin with my co-host. Tanner, how you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, I got really excited when you when you uh, when you said we had an email. I thought you meant that someone emailed us, but uh, but no. Uh, <laughs> let's see, not yet. We'll get those uh, over here in Wisconsin. Up here, I guess, compared to you, I don't know. Over slash up here, it is three degrees outside, so I am staying <laughs> right where I am inside all hmm. day. Uh, haven't had too much snow, but it is uh, pretty brutally cold. Yeah, that sounds like it. That'll be pertinent to what we're talking about today, actually. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, yeah, um, this one's a this one's kind of a personal one. I know we both have backgrounds in Milwaukee, um, so this is kind of one that's just built into the Milwaukee lore a little bit. Like I think you're at least aware of this shipwreck if you're from Milwaukee or have roots in Milwaukee whatsoever. Um, and yeah, I guess with that, let's roll into it. Today we're going to be talking about the SS Milwaukee. Um, it was a ship that was owned by the Grand Trunk Milwaukee Car Ferry Company. Hold on, so that's a... I, gotta, I gotta stop you right there. I've gotta do it. Oh. Not to be confused with the Grand <laughs> Funk Milwaukee Car Ferry Company. Different company, in Different fact, things. yes, not the Grand Funk okay. Milwaukee Car Company. <laughs> okay, continue. So, so basically, uh, that long name is, it's just the, it's the ferry company that is owned by the Grand Trunk Railway. It, that's all that is. So they're a, they're a railroad that owns ferry boats to take ships basically across the lake. Um, and we'll get into why that is here in a minute. But first, a little bit more about the ship. It was built in Cleveland, Ohio by the American Shipbuilding Company, launched in 1902 and acquired by the Grand Trunk Company in 1909. So the main route that it would sail would be between Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Muskegon, Michigan. So if you're unfamiliar with Great Lakes geography, Basically, that is just directly across Lake Michigan from each other. So basically, the whole point was to avoid the congestion of Chicago. So you're taking rail cars directly from Milwaukee and then sailing them across to Michigan. That way, you're, you're saving some time. It's only about a three or four hour sail. So it's not, not super far, and it's a lot easier than, than trying to get through Chicago. Um, 
the boat sailed out of the company's docks in the port of Milwaukee, and that port area is actually located in one of my favorite rivers uh, in Mil- or in the Milwaukee or Wisconsin area, the Kinnick River. The KK. It's just a fun name to say. The KK River, as as the locals call it. Um, which is kind of weird because it kind of looks like a drainage retention pond for most of its route, and then it gets to the lake, and all of a sudden it's a big estuary. So it's a little bit of local Milwaukee geography for everybody. Um, so the story that we're going to be talking about takes place on October 22nd, 1929. Uh, that is a Tuesday, so keep that in mind. That'll be relevant in a little bit. Um, the boat is captained by Robert McKay. Uh, he had 50 years of sailing experience, and Robert also had a nickname. Do you have any guess as to what his nickname might have been? I, I know the answer to this question because I, I did actually <laughs> read the notes. Uh, Captain McKay's nickname is Bad Weather Bob, and I am unsure if that is lore or fact, but I do hope that it is, in fact, a fact, because that is an awesome nickname for a Great Lakes uh, boat captain. That's awesome. Uh, so, obviously, based off his name, he was not necessarily afraid to sail in heavy weather, and in 1929, I don't think you'd find a Great Lakes captain who was afraid to sail in heavy weather, even more so than our previous episode. You don't get to where this guy is at by being afraid to sail. Like, you're, you're going to just go out and do your job. Um, these are pretty hard men. None of them are probably batting too much of an eye at doing this. Yeah, that sounds like a good way to get fired and get laughed at by all your fellow captains. Pretty much. Um, so, uh, the day of the story on the 22nd of October, there's 50 mile an hour gusts and 20 foot waves, which doesn't sound like a lot when you compare it to an ocean story or like the story we talked about last week, but this is the Great Lakes and it's a little different there. It, that, that's an exceptionally nasty storm. Like that is, that's pretty tough sailing conditions. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about what the ship was carrying. It, it had 27 rail cars. That's, that's what I see on most sources. Um, there's a, the numbers fluctuate a little bit depending on what you look at, but I think it's more interesting what the rail cars were carrying. Uh, it, the cargo included lumber, food, bathtubs, and Nash automobiles, which are somewhat a novelty at that time. I, I, have, a, I have a comment here I want to make. Um, yeah. I, when you told me about this story, we're going to do my first question uh, when, I, when I was reading about the cargo, um, and it still kind of bounces around in my brain how crazy this is, but... You can put a train on a ship. Yes. That is insane. Um, it's it's kind of important to note that this is, I know we talked about with the Alfaro, that it is a Roro type vessel. So, you know, you're rolling on trucks or cars and you're rolling them off. This is like the original Roro vessel. You're rolling on um, rail cars. And then you roll them off at destination. So this is essentially a glorified ferry. I think a lot of people are familiar with that. But uh, it's kind of the it's pre-containerization of freight. So you're using boxcars for everything. It's it's kind of an interesting concept to see how far we've come from this to the massive container ships and stuff that we have now. Yeah, but it's the same idea. That, it's the same concept. That was just crazy to me because thinking of a ship, in, especially like an older ship in 1929, I guess I still really couldn't conceptualize in my head how massive this ship is, but the idea that you can put, like, an almost 30-car train on this ship really highlighted that for me. Like, this is a massive, massive ship. Uh, that you, yeah, you know, it's a big one, especially 
for its time, it's fairly big. Uh, I mean, compared to what we have now, it's, it's it would look tiny, but uh, no, it's not like it's a little dinghy. Like this is this is a significantly sized vessel. Um, an important note is that this ship does not have radio. Radio is not common yet, and especially not for like a lake freighter, where they're only doing a three or four hour trip across the lake. I can promise you that like the company did not see it fit to throw a radio into that when it was still a fairly unique piece of equipment. It's not an ocean liner doing transatlantic voyages or anything like that. This is, can't be overstated. this is a really boring trip that this mm-hmm. boat is on. There's nothing unique about ne- this. Never going to need radio. Never going to need it. You're just going out on a little lake. <laughs> um, all right, so as the ship is leaving, um, there's actually some people that see it. They're on the 10th floor of the Elk Club building in uh, downtown Milwaukee. And uh, they're watching it sail out of the harbor and through the breakwater. Uh, So the group states that the ship was tossed violently and nearly disappeared from view when falling between the waves. One observer stated that he thought it was only a 50-50 shot if the ship would make it. So it's kind of weird. I mean, this is like pre-Twitter, pre, you know, everything online. Like, these people are watching this happen, and they're really the only witnesses. It's it's kind of a weird thing to think that they were some of the last people to see that ship still sailing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a cool story. Um. So the actual last people to, to see or note the SS Milwaukee would have been the crew staffing the Milwaukee light ship. So the SS Milwaukee passed this around 3.45 p.m. Um, the light ship's anchored about three miles offshore from the port of Milwaukee. And all a light ship is, is basically, it's, it's literally what it sounds like. It is a boat that is anchored and it has a light and it acts like a lighthouse, basically. It's a way to put a lighthouse somewhere that you can't normally have one. Is that something that is is used primarily in, like, the Great Lakes, or is that also something that you would have on, like, a seacoast? No, it's it's fairly common anywhere that there's a unique navigational hazard. Um, I know, like, you'll see it... Nowadays, it's more about just, like, metal towers and stuff that are built, like frying pan shoals in North Carolina. There's now, like, a tower with a light. But back in the day, there would have been a light ship. Okay. And uh, I don't know, some of them actually had kind of a reputation for sinking. I'm sure we'll discuss one at some point. But, uh, yeah, it should be noted that the crew of the lightship were the last people to see the Milwaukee above water. Okay. Um, that brings us to October 24th, uh, which, would have been, which would have been a Thursday. And this is actually what's referred to as Black Thursday on Wall Street. So the whole time this story is going on, this is the beginning of the huge market crash that you know, kind of the beginnings of the Great Depression. That's the time that we're in right here. Um, so on Thursday, the SS Grand Rapids arrives in Muskegon. This was a sister ship to the Milwaukee, and it had actually left port about four hours after the Milwaukee. Um, this is when people began to get worried because they had seen no trace of the Milwaukee on their voyage. And, I mean, you may be thinking, like, wow, they didn't worry for a whole day when a ship was on a really short trip, but... Again, no radio communications. It's 1929. It's not unusual for a ship to have problems or to be blown off course or just not communicate for a few days. Like it, it, It's not weird yet. It's, it's worrying, but not desperately so mm-hmm. yet. Um, however, as the day progresses, it becomes more obvious that something's gone wrong. Uh, later that day, the SS Cetus is en route from Milwaukee to Chicago. Uh, they begin to see bodies floating in the water off of Kenosha. So that's just south. That's between Chicago and Milwaukee. Um, 
The bodies are strapped into SS Milwaukee life vests, and the captain actually has a pretty eerie quote. He states that it was like tombstones in an ocean graveyard. And that paints a pretty vivid picture. I can't imagine sailing along, and all of a sudden you're in a sea of bodies like that that is quite the picture this is such eerie imagery when i was when i read that part and um yeah just the idea that these these bodies are like very organized very strapped into their you know their places on these on these boats and that's uh that's that's just a very eerie uh, image yeah yeah it is something um so as that's going on uh throughout the afternoon and the evening more and more pieces of boat and bodies are turning up so it's it's almost like a big crime scene throughout lake michigan like all these different areas there's different little bits and remnants showing up um so pieces of the ship are found floating off of chicago and then actually on saturday october 26th so again the ship set sail on a tuesday we're on to saturday now a lifeboat is found floating off of holland michigan so on the other side of the lake from milwaukee and there's actually four bodies tied into milwaukee life jackets in a lifeboat uh, they determined that the men died from exposure sometime on Friday. And I just want to point out that, again, the Milwaukee left port on a Tuesday, and if they're determining that these men died on Friday, these men spent multiple days in that lifeboat. And I just, I don't know, I can't imagine, like, being in that environment. That, sound, that sounds absolutely awful. I think, like we said before we started recording, that sounds like something from a Stephen King novel. Yeah, and, and at this point, I'm, I'm assuming in 1929... And also assuming that this storm, the seas are still pretty rough. So you're in that lifeboat, but you're essentially at the mercy of the lake in terms of where you're going. Is that right? Right. Um, exactly. And there's no, you know, there's no beacon. There's no, um, you know, emergency frequency beacons or anything like that. Like you are literally just in the water in a little boat, hoping that someone may stumble across you. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like that's that's your only chance. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was also interesting to me the the way that it kind of scattered out, I guess I didn't understand that that's kind of, I, I kind of assumed that I guess everything would kind of go to the same place more or less. Uh, mm-hmm. But you've got stuff, uh, you know, washing up in uh, or off the coast in Kenosha, in Chicago, um, in Holland. So like just south of Muskegon. Um, yeah. Like, like you mentioned, this is like a big crime scene, but it's just all over Lake Michigan. It's everywhere. Yeah, and again, no one knows what's happened at this point. Like, there was no distress call. There was no nothing. So you're just finding pieces of, of a boat. And, I mean, you're, you only think that it's the Milwaukee because the name is stenciled on the life jackets. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a pretty crazy scene. Uh, I guess we'll go ahead and note now that of the 52 men on board, only nine bodies were ever recovered, although some sources do say 15 bodies. And, again, we're kind of in that weird period where – we're blurring a little bit of fact with lore and stuff like that. I mean, it. there's a couple different versions of the story, but the main facts are always there that the ship was lost with all hands. Um, so we'll move on to Sunday, October 27th. This is where we start getting some answers about what's going on. Another lifeboat is found. Um, and I've. this is a little bit of a conflicting bit from a couple of different sources. One source says that a waterproof case was found in a lifeboat, Another says floating near it, but regardless, we do have the contents of what was in this waterproof case, and I will go ahead and read that now. That is, it's actually a handwritten note from the purser of the ship. His name was A.R. Sedan. It's dated October 22, 1929, 8.30 p.m. 
The ship is making water fast. We have turned around and headed for Milwaukee. Pumps are working, but Seagate is bent in and can't keep water out. Flicker is flooded. Seas are tremendous. Things look bad. Crew roll is about the same as last payday. So there's there's definitely a lot in that um, to kind of unpack. Uh, so it's very clear that they were aware that there was a problem if they're turning around to Milwaukee. Um, they're very aware that there's water coming in due to the bent Seagate. They're trying to pump, and it's the same... Is you're basically getting down to the same thing that sunk the Alfaro is that you've got something that's put a hole and allowed water to come in and you can't pump it out quick enough. I was he, I was intrigued by the last line there uh, when I read that that handwritten note and I was kind of confused the first time I read it. I thought it was kind of a weird way to end that note until I realized why he was doing it uh, when he says. Uh, flickers flooded, seas are tremendous, things look bad, crew roll is about the same as last payday. Mm-hmm. And I realize he's doing that because he knows that they're probably all going to die. And he, right. he wants people to know who's on the actual ship. Uh, yeah, there's, it's it's not as well, like, there's no, like, there's not like an HR department that you can reference for, mm-hmm. like, everyone's social security number or anything like that. Like, sometimes you're just signing on an able-bodied seaman in port that's only with you for one one trip like it it's a more transient crew mm-hmm. yeah that was a that was a, a very like interesting and then really again kind of kind of eerie uh last line of that because he it's pretty obvious he knows that like people need to know what what bodies they might be finding right um there is one fine there was another little bit attached to that on a separate sheet of paper um, all it says is can't stay up much longer, hole inside a boat. And that's it. That's that's all we know in 1929 about this ship. So when uh, when he says can't stay up much longer, hole inside a boat, is that also made on the on the actual ship? Is he talking about a hole in the side of the Milwaukee or is he talking about a hole in the side of like the lifeboat? Um, I assume the Milwaukee yeah, that's a good question. I never thought about it that way. I was assuming the Milwaukee, um, I mean, perhaps he was in the lifeboat when, and I mean, obviously he had to be near it or someone had to put the case right. in the boat, but I'm, I'm assuming he's referring to the Milwaukee, okay. uh, when he's saying a hole inside of the boat. Right. Um, but yeah, that basically concludes the actual story portion of the Milwaukee, um, in 1929, no one knows what happens. We find some remnants, we find some bodies and, Kind of like a lot of these shipwrecks from that time period, that's really the end of it. It becomes just another story that people pass around and over drinks in a bar. It becomes something that the families remember, but eventually it fades and becomes less and less of of a topic du jour, if you will. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, in the meantime, we've uh, we've done a little bit uh, of exploring and we know a lot more about the shipwreck now, but we'll uh, let's go ahead and move on and let's let's discuss and and tackle a few questions about this thing. All right. Um, I don't know if you want to go ahead and start that. So I guess I guess the first big question, kind of one of the big questions we'll always have, and we've addressed it already a little bit, but is our our overall question of of why why did this particular shipwreck happen? We've made some comparisons to the Alfaro that we talked about last week. But in terms of this particular thing, we obviously don't have the same documented minute-by-minute, second-by-second uh, transcript like we have uh, with the Alfaro. But why 
what what is the what is the proximal cause or the primary cause of this? Uh, so it's from like the research that people have done. Um, the wreck was discovered in 1972, about seven miles northeast of Milwaukee. So we we do know where this ship is now. People have dove on it. They've explored it. Uh, what it appears to have been is that a rail car was either improperly secured or came loose in the heavy seas. If that sounds familiar, it should. It's essentially the same thing that happened with the El Faro. And what do we know when there's something rolling loose in the hold of a ship that's bad? That yeah, That's just generally not the way that you want it to go. Don't put stuff with wheels on boats, I think. That seems to be the, the moral here. So anyway, that car becomes loose, and it it rams through the Seagate. So the Seagate's meant to keep the water out of the, the main hold area. So with that, the boat's going to become less buoyant as it takes on water. And it basically becomes a problem that you can't fix. At a certain point, the inflow is going to be greater than the outflow of the pumps. You're going to lose buoyancy, and it's just a matter of time before you take a wave and you don't come back up. And that's on all likelihood what happened. Um... Because we found lifeboats, because we found people in life jackets, it seems pretty obvious that the captain knew that this was going to happen. Uh, he must have given an abandoned ship order. Uh, probably acted quicker like uh, and gave his crew a little bit more of a chance um, than in the story of the El Faro because they did seem a little prepared. Like we did, we found bodies in a lifeboat in this scenario. So, the, you know, in theory, if those men had been found a day earlier, they might have survived. Mm-hmm. So this was a survivable accident if the conditions had been better. Okay. Something but that, I think that... good. Something that I wanted to point out, and we can, we can put a picture of this uh, on Instagram for sure, is that when I read the story initially, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't picturing the ship correctly in my head. I was picturing kind of more of a classically shaped freighter until mm-hmm. I was able to finally find... Uh, an image of one of these ships, one of these Grand Trunk ferries, from the back. And I realized that the back of this ship is totally flat. Right. Yeah, it is. Like that, that Seagate is very important. And, and yeah, so, like, when I was thinking initially about, you know, the Seagate being broken, it wasn't immediately transparent to me. Like, obviously, that's a bad thing. But seeing a picture of it, you see that if, if this Seagate's damaged, uh, especially in high seas... There's there's nothing to keep water out of this boat. Yeah, this is a dangerous design. Like, there's a reason we don't make boats like this anymore. Um, I mean, you can still sail on these. I know the SS Badger is a thing. We've we've actually been on that boat before. Obviously, they're not taking it out in a storm. Mm-hmm. It's very much more a tourist thing. But this is not a great design for heavy weather. Like it, it just is. It's a very heavy boat carrying a cargo that if it gets loose can be very dangerous. So it's, it's not the best design. Like I said, there's a reason we don't use this design anymore. Yeah. Looking at the design, looking at just the overall shape of it, it just looks like a ship that, I mean, this thing looks impossible to, to, uh, to maneuver to, especially to, to turn this thing around in a storm when you've got a literal, uh, train loose in, in the hold (laughs) is it just, it just looks impossible. It really does. Um, it's terrifying to think about, especially um, kind of the next thing I'll talk about is like kind of the, the changes in communication. Um, 
you know, no radio, no real way to call for help. You literally are leaving a message in a bottle, basically, uh, to try to give any sort of communication to the outside world about what happened. Uh, imagine how different this scenario is if he can radio in to the Coast Guard that, hey, we're going down. This is our location. You're talking a distance of seven miles to Milwaukee. This isn't the vast ocean where no one will find you. Mm-hmm. If you can give them your position, you might have a chance to at least be recovered. Mm-hmm. If you can abandon ship and get in a lifeboat, it it's pretty amazing how different the technology is at this time. Like you know, planes aren't even that commonly used of a tool to like do search and rescue at this time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just completely different that you can be that close to civilization, but still have no effective means of of getting your message out. Mm-hmm. Um, going on with kind of another point, I think this also shows another poor decision by a captain in the weather. Uh, I feel like this captain also makes a decision to sail into a storm that he probably shouldn't have sailed into. And it's easy to say, I guess, hindsight, but if the ship that left four hours after him makes it safely, you kind of have to wonder if had he delayed his voyage, would things have turned out differently? Do you think his nickname played all played it all into his decision to, to uh, run it, <laughs> to borrow a, a term from last week? Um, I believe he probably said it's always worse in Alaska, and uh, yes. let's do this. Worst thing. things happen in Alaska. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, I think it's probably a cultural thing at the time. I mean, you, and again, like these, these things run on a tight schedule. Like if you're delaying that freight from getting across, you're delaying someone further down the line. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there is some company pressure to get it done no matter what. And that's probably why he became a captain of a, of a boat. These people need their bathtubs. They need their bathtubs and they need their Nash automobiles. Um, and I guess the final thing, like we'll, we'll hammer this point home uh, as far as like discussion type stuff, Sec- properly securing cargo is really important. This is we're we're two for two on stories of cargo sinking a ship. And if you think about it, like a car is one thing. It's it's what two three thousand pounds. A rail car is really heavy. If that thing is starting to roll around in your hold and gather momentum, you can't fix that problem. Like you, it's not like you can tie it back down. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a, it's a it's total, totally different beast um, to have. Again, this this goes back to my initial just surprise and amazement that you can you can even fit a train uh, onto a ship like this. And yeah, what was it twenty was it twenty five or twenty seven train cars? Um, yeah, yeah, depending on the source, which are all like fully loaded, obviously. And that's crazy to have those things shifting around in the hull on rough seas like this and yeah at that point it's not like you can go down and try to secure them i would think that that seems extremely dangerous yeah it really it does seem dangerous i mean i'm I'm sure that they had to make an attempt or something um i think one thing i forgot to to mention note how many more people are on board this ship the ship is significantly smaller than the alfaro but they have at least 52 people on board um, it just shows you how much more physical and how much more manpowered everything was at this point. Mm-hmm. There is no automation. So, I mean, it's a it's a large number of people on a boat that's fairly small. Like, by today's standards, you would probably run this boat with 15 people. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's easy to forget. Like, nothing's automated. All of this is done by feel and by experience. And I think that's kind of what leads them to their their shipwreck the, the the shipwreck in this case is that 
everyone thought it would be okay. It's the same thing as the Alfaro. It's, you know, they've done this hundreds of times and, you know, why worry about this storm? And it's, it's just another day at the office for these guys. And this one didn't end very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and part of, I think the, the weight of the story comes from kind of the reconstructed analysis of what happened, because I noticed that when they, when they found the wreckage, which I think we'll touch on in a, in a little bit here, um, of when and how they found it, they noted that it, the bow was facing southwest, uh, so they had definitely tried to turn around, um, like more or less immediately. You know, once they're right. once they're out into this, almost immediately saying we have to turn around, we can't do this. So yeah, seeing that almost instant, um, you know, re- regretting the decision to try to run this storm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems that the captain realizes fairly quickly, Yeah, like you said, that like, this is a mistake, that he's going to try to fix it. It seems like he acted in a pretty professional manner, mm-hmm. that once he realized things were too much, he attempted to fix it, and unfortunately it was just too late. Right. Um, all right, so let's kind of wrap this thing up and do some concluding thoughts on this and talk about what is going on with this shipwreck now. Because, like you said, there, it's still a, it's still a very important part of Milwaukee culture and Milwaukee lore. Um, so the wreck, like I said previously, the wreck was found in 1972, about seven miles northeast of Milwaukee. Uh, there's a ton of good pictures online. We'll definitely link to that. Um, it's pretty fascinating. You see rail cars, automobiles, bathtubs, and I think you had some thoughts on that, actually, didn't you? Yeah, it was, it was very interesting reading about this and seeing the pictures because... It's just a, it's a great example of how, you know, something like this happens, something that if, if this trip goes well, if it makes it to, uh, to Muskegon, to its destination, nothing about this trip would be interesting. Nothing about its cargo is particularly interesting, um, except maybe the, the, the Nash automobiles. For me, I, I had never heard of Nash, uh, Nash motors before. Uh, so, a good local local Milwaukee company based in Kenosha uh, but uh, but aside from that the stuff on this is pretty mundane it's uh, some food some perishable goods and you've got bathtubs you've got toilet cisterns stuff that inherently really is not very interesting but when you see them in the context of these pictures that you can see in this gallery you know of them at the bottom of Lake Michigan it it gives them a certain gravity of of just the fact that they're still there, uh, just the fact that they mm-hmm. can be seen in this environment, uh, you can see them, you know, stacked up, and a lot of them are broken. A lot of the uh, the train cars are you know busted open, and obviously by this point, like rotted out and decayed. But there's still all like the twisted metal down there. Um, you, know, you can see the the propeller, uh, the rudder, and all those things. It's just fascinating pictures uh, to be taken in, in this context. You can see this, this Nash automobile inside a crushed rail car. Just fascinating how, how the mundane objects in this have become kind of emblematic of, of this whole culture, um, you know, of the time that they were in, you know, just because of what the products are, this late 20s, you know, depression era stuff. Um, yeah, it's just fascinating. It's, it, it, I guess it reminds me a bit of when they find... When they find ancient artifacts, if they're digging at a place, you know, like what 
Mm. Pompeii, for example, they find a cup, they find a plate, and it's fascinating, it's amazing. Even though there's nothing inherently interesting about that object, it's interesting because it's still here. It still has a story to tell. And that's kind of what, what this reminds me of, you know. These these are the most fascinating toilet cisterns I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, I, I think kind of as you're describing that, I kind of am brought back to like urban exploration or something like that, where you see everyday mundane objects, but the decay is kind of what makes them beautiful. It, it's not it doesn't look the way it's supposed to look. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially it's such a weird environment as being on the bottom of Lake Michigan it, and crushed and twisted. There's a certain beauty in that of at least recognizing that this is a thing that happened and not something that, you know, you just forget about. Do you know, is this, uh, is this like, I don't even know how this works, like in the Great Lakes, if, if this is something people do. Is this the kind of thing that people can dive on, or is it, like, restricted? Um, I don't know what, like, the legal... I, don't, I mean, as long as you're not taking anything, I wouldn't think that it would be restricted. Uh, it is, like, 120 feet down, which I think is a pretty hefty dive for, like, just a recreational diver, unless you really know what you're doing. So this is not the place to get... A new bathtub? No, no, I would in fact not grab one of these bathtubs from the bottom of Lake Michigan. Um, I think in general, though, most shipwrecks, as long as you're not taking artifacts from them, you are you're okay to dive on it. Um, so a little bit about the Milwaukee today, because you do see some remnants of it kind of around the Milwaukee area. Um, one of its lifeboats is on display in the city of Port Washington, which is actually a really nice... Uh, Nice little town on the lake. They have a little harbor. I actually really like visiting it. It's a great place to grab brunch or a drink and just kind of enjoy being on the lake, walk out to the lighthouse and all that. It's very picturesque in Port Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, one of the lifeboats is uh, on display there. And then the more prominent um, piece or artifact from the Milwaukee is actually the anchor that was recovered in 1973. So it is located in the Mayor Festival Park grounds, which if you're from Milwaukee, it's, uh, it's where Summerfest happens, which is, I don't know, it's one of my favorite festivals. I really enjoy it, actually. And I remember the first time I found this there, I was unaware that it was there, and I kind of just happened to be walking around enjoying the festival, and all of a sudden I look up and there's the anchor of the SS Milwaukee and having known the story, it was kind of a, it's a really cool, like sobering moment in the middle of a really fun music festival, just to see this sitting there and knowing that story. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I'm kind of glad that they've put it there. It's, it's kind of a, it's a good reminder of uh, a story that happened and it, uh, it makes it kind of a, a nice little place in the park that it's in. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's been thrown up on by Summerfest revelers at least once. I have no doubt that two, that has happened two, quite a bit. Two integral pieces of Milwaukee culture coming together <laughs> synergistically. Yeah, it, uh, it's not the quietest place. But no, um, that's kind of the story of the Milwaukee and how it relates to, uh, I guess, the, the bigger picture of of the history of, of sailing and shipwrecks. Uh, I think I kind of like doing them in this order where we talked about the Alfaro first and then this one. So we can kind of see just how far things have come when looking back at the Alfaro, that there really was no excuse for not avoiding a hurricane with all the communications and technology that, you know, are available to you. These guys were sailing blind mm-hmm. on the Milwaukee and they unfortunately sailed into a storm and like the Alfaro didn't secure their cargo. And this is what happens. But, um, no, I think uh, this is a good sample from a, a different location as well. We're definitely going to be jumping around um, between the Great Lakes, between the oceans, 
Um, obviously, different countries, different areas. We want to be pretty wide, uh, a pretty wide stance, I guess, on this incorporating different things. Um, but yeah, I think this one's pretty good. Did you have any final thoughts or anything you wanted to say? Yeah, about I did. On the on the level of the personnel, I don't I don't know if we got into this. I know we discussed it before, you know, in our in our pre recording session, but I don't know if we discussed it in the show about the number of crew. Yes. So there's pretty wide discrepancies because um, in terms of how many people are on the ship, who's on the ship, if you go to wisconsinshipwrecks.org, it lists this as 46 lives lost. But then you go mm-hmm. other places um, and you'll see 59 crewmen aboard. Um, yeah, it's pretty, there's, a, like a, there's very, a pretty wide range. Very wide discrepancy of how many people may have been on this ship. Um, I mean, I'm assuming a lot of that comes from just record keeping, mm-hmm. um, you know, not being what it is now, um, how transient the crews were. I mean, even as simple as things of two people having similar names mm-hmm. and everything being handwritten and stuff like that, like it, it would be pretty easy to, uh, to make that mistake. And it's not the first time that that would have happened. There's. Actually, well, there's actually a story that I can tell real quick about another shipwreck on the Great Lakes, and I cannot remember the name of the ship at the moment. But the ship goes down, and there's 20-some people on board, and it happens to go down, and the bodies wash up in a town where a man that is the coroner, his son is a sailor on the Great Lakes. So they're bringing bodies into the morgue, and the coroner's going through them, and he finds the body of his son. It has a similar tattoo with his the son's initials it has a birthmark um it has a couple other distinguishing features so you know that's an awful thing right you're mm-hmm. a coroner and you have to do the autopsy on your own son well they play in the funeral and you know it all the notices are in the newspapers well it turns out the son had actually gotten off of that boat and decided to take a week at a port uh-huh. so he sees the record of the ship going down and sees his name listed as someone who went down with the ship huh he then travels back home, but he takes his time. He runs into one of his friends on the street, like in down in the, the little downtown, and the guy can't believe it and says, "I'm on the way to your funeral. What are you? What, why are you here? What is?" He thinks he's seen a ghost. Mm-hmm. So the guy, quite literally, and again, I'm not, I'm not sure how apocryphal this story is, but he quite literally walks into his own funeral, <laughs> and his father's so angry that says, "Well, I've already paid for your funeral, so I want you to get out of my sight." But it's, I guess just to tell that story is that we don't – half the time people didn't know who these people were. Mm-hmm. There, there weren't like social security numbers attached to everybody. It was, it was very much, hey, I'm John Smith and I'm sailing on this boat this time. And you could give a different name each time if you wanted to. So I think part of that is what plays into the discrepancies of, of who was on the ship and stuff like that. I, I was able to find the original newspaper clipping mm-hmm. uh, that reported this. And I bu- – I don't, I don't know exactly what paper this is from. I believe it's from one of the Milwaukee papers. Um, and so it's just headlined, Car Ferry Milwaukee sinks with all crew, bodies washed ashore. Um, carried 27 freight cars, flounders in trough, sinks six hours after leaving port. Um, so it's interesting, back with the, the number discrepancy. In the opening paragraph here, 
Um, it mentions four bodies picked up at Lake Michigan, sighting of a dozen others floating. Gave definite evidence tonight that the car ferry Milwaukee had gone to the bottom with her crew of 54 men. Two of the bodies were recovered late this afternoon. Tonight, the Coast Guard at Kenosha found two more, which were identified as those of Captain Robert McKay of Detroit and Purser A.R. Sadan Sedan of Grand Haven, Michigan. Um, because of the extreme roughness of the lake, salvaging oper- operations were suspended until tomorrow. Um, and then I just want to jump to the end of it here, because um, they, they address a little bit of the, the numbers also. Um, Milwaukee sailed in the face of a violent gale, which some marine men describe as the worst in the last 16 years. So kind of like we said, everyone kind of knew that this was a bad storm, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's kind of part of the gig if you're one of these captains. Um, let's see. It's not definitely known how many men were aboard. Federal regulations provided that the Milwaukee carry a crew of 50. The payroll of October 16th showed 59, although three of these men are known not to have been on the boat. Whether substitutes for these three were aboard, Grand Trunk officials were unable to say. Um, so that addresses at least some of the discrepancy. So it looks like lower than, possibly lower than 59 if those men weren't replaced, but probably higher than 50 if they're operating this thing within regulations. Right. Yeah, it is. It's weird to think that you wouldn't know exactly who was on the boat, you know, for like legal reasons or for, you know, stuff like this. Mm -hmm. It is kind of strange. But uh, there was one other thing, one other just interesting stat, I guess, as I was looking through this and and looking for things to to sort of comment on Um, the cargo. So we talked about what was on there and it mentions on uh, on WisconsinShipwrecks.org. The cargo was valued at $100,000, and the train cars themselves were valued at $63,000. And I just assumed that that was given in 1929 money. Um, I would think, yeah. (laughs) I did the conversion, and I think it came out to, like, about a million and a half dollars worth of stuff, including the train cars. So, interesting, I guess. Yeah. So, anyway, that that was my last little comment here. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well um, with the Milwaukee. It uh, It's just a good glimpse into the past to kind of see where we're coming from with a lot of this stuff. Um, and a good uh, entry point into Great Lakes shipwrecks. Um, not the most famous shipwreck. I mean, locally famous within Milwaukee. It kind of, I think, interested. It pops up like once every 10 or so years when someone in a local paper writes an article about it. Um but I think it's an important one to talk about. It's uh, it's important because of how common it is or how boring it is in a way that uh, it was just an everyday thing. There was nothing spectacular going on except a storm, and these guys were just trying to do their job. And that's, you know, kind of it's the same story as the Alfaro, that uh, it was just a, just normal people doing their normal job on a normal day until it wasn't. And it's uh, it's kind of... It's kind of nice to share those stories with people, and that's I think what's so interesting about shipwrecks. It sort of uh, it sort of highlights the fact that an, a quote unquote normal day on the Great Lakes can be terrifying. Yeah, I mean, just in the maritime world in general, it can be a really boring day, and it can turn into one of your worst days in the matter of an hour. So, one minute you're talking about Splenda or sugar in your coffee, and the next minute uh, your ship is sinking. It's, that's kind of what we saw with the Alfaro transcripts. Yeah. It uh, it can turn on a dime. But I'm looking forward to sharing more of these with everybody. Um, 
again, feel free to reach out to us and let us know what, if there's something you really want to hear about. We would love to do it. And uh, yeah, we'll be posting some pictures of these on Instagram, some of the stuff we've talked about today. And we look forward to talking to you guys next week. I, we really appreciate you listening. I do need to make a a, a post post production note about our first episode. Uh, yes. When I did my when I did my intro in the first episode, I said that I would be mortified to be on a ship, and that's not <laughs> true. I used the wrong word. I was trying to say either horrified or terrified, but I came up with mortified which means embarrassed, not scared. So I would have no problem being on a ship except for that I would be terrified of it, not necessarily mortified. I am mortified that I used the wrong word in our first episode, though. So that is... <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for the correction. <laughs> that is my note uh, about episode one. So yes, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I learned a lot uh, talking about this one. So yeah, looking forward to another one next week. All right, that sounds good. We'll be talking to you guys next week, and we appreciate you listening. Thanks.